This episode of Talk Your Book is proudly brought to you by Honan, providing a complete range of insurance, risk, and financial solutions. Bundy's called me up, told me to take a look, but stay stubborn as bulls and talk their own book. Get the money, get the money, get, get the money. Well, Nick Griffin and, and James Sanitas, welcome for the first time, James. And Nick, you're, you're coming back on, so thanks so much for making the time. thought before we get into the, the mega theme, which is climate change, I thought it might start if you can introduce the, the Munro Climate Change Fund and uh, what you guys are trying to achieve there. Yeah, I can take that one. So, so at Munro Partners, our goal is to be your global growth manager. So, so that's growth equities and global. So generally outside of Australia, we, we recognise people have lots of good ideas they can invest in Australia, and our job is to solve that problem for you outside of Australia. Uh, so we do that with our global growth funds, um, being MAET or the Munro Global Growth Fund. And, and, and what we're here to talk about today is, is just one opportunity within that fund, which is the climate area of interest. And, and climate is one of our biggest AOIs for the future. We think it's a big structural change opportunity. And the only difference this time is we've set up a standalone fund called the Munro Climate Change Leaders Fund, uh, MCCL, which is quoted on the Australian Stock Exchange. And that fund is just designed to take our best 15 to 25 ideas that that's quite simply prosecute this one opportunity, which is that every company in it, we think, is going to help enable the decarbonisation of the planet. And if, if they do that, we think they'll be incredibly successful. And so our job is to, to search the world to essentially find these enablers of decarbonisation because we are now on a path to decarbonise the planet. And, and rather than just have it as part of a bigger global equity fund, we've, we've now given you it as a standalone product to, so you can actually scale up the bet if you're most interested in it. And James, you and Nick are lead portfolio managers on this fund. Nick was saying off air that means that you guys use his face and you do all the work. Is that sort of how, <laughs> is that sort of how the partnership's been playing out so far? Oh, look, Nick might be a bit modest there. But um, no, look, I mean, it is an area we have been investing in for 15 years, over 15 years. Um, so Nick actually invested um, pre-GFC in a lot of these stocks. And, and um, yeah, there's been quite a quite a few uh, twists and turns over that, that period of time. And, yeah, some of the leaders that are here today are, was, was sort of, uh, you know, trying to make their way back 15 years ago. So, um, yeah, we have been looking at the space for a long time, whether it be, you know, old wind companies, wind turbine companies or insulation companies, uh, et cetera. But, um, yeah, we built up that sort of knowledge base over, over a very long period of time. So, yeah, I wouldn't say I'm doing all the work, just just most of it. <laughs> <laughs> and so, James, we might start with you. What, what opportunities are you seeing in this space, broadly speaking, that, that you're finding the most exciting? Yeah, so, yeah, good question. So maybe just to take it from the top here. So the problem is we're not going to hit this 1.5 degree uh, sort of agreement as set out in Paris a few years ago now. We're, we're actually going to hit three degree temperature rise. And so what we need to do is bend that curve really, really quickly. And so you need a lot of investment to go in to bend that curve quickly. And, and what we're saying is it's going to be about $50 trillion over the next 30 years to spend. And what that $50 trillion is, is it's a re- revenue opportunity for the enablers of decarbonisation. Um, so we're basically sizing that 50 uh, trillion across a, a bunch of areas, but the biggest area is actually energy efficiency companies. So about 25% is going to go to there. And that's going to be companies that are involved in um, uh, HVAC, heating, cooling, and inter- e- ventilation, et cetera, in, in buildings and retrofitting buildings. So we're retrofitting your home, renovating your home with um, high tech equipment and, and um, insulation. That's going to basically mean that you're going to save on your CO2 footprint from your, your office, your home, your warehouse, et cetera. So that's the biggest piece. Next biggest piece is just the clean energy side. So the transition from fossil fuels, coal, gas, et cetera, to renewables, um, be it solar, wind, et cetera. 
that's about 20% of that, that, that 50 trill. Um, obviously, the, the clean transportation side as well. Again, probably a little under 20%, but that's obviously your Teslas uh, and your EV companies, but also all the battery companies within that, as well as the semiconductor companies as well that basically sit behind the, uh, behind the, the, the uh, OEMs there, the auto manufacturers there. And then the last piece is just the circular economy side as we're sort of framing it up. Um, and so that's everything from packaging companies um, that are moving from plastic to other substrates, as an example. Um, so all the CPG companies, Coke, Pepsi, et cetera, have these, these targets in mind and they're going to be shifting their substrates and their carbon footprints and their waste as well. Um, and it's just companies like involved in trash, recycling. Uh, it's going to be companies involved in agriculture and so forth as well. Um, and basically just reuse what we use today um, to basically lower the footprint of the carbon footprint but also the waste footprint as well and you've got the ability to invest in commodity producers as well yeah so i think i'm um, coming back to the point um, the companies that we're trying to invest in will help enable the decarbonization of the planet and so so our simple rule there is that 50 percent of their revenues should come from technologies or products that enable the decarbonization of the planet within the next five years now now that's not a hard and fast rule because sometimes it takes a bit longer sometimes it takes a bit less um, and yeah, so commodity companies fit perfectly. They are providing the the resources for the battery technologies that's going to help electrify the economy. So copper is going to be the key product to electrify the economy, and you can expect a strong period of demand for copper on that front. Uh, lithium and batteries, nickel and batteries, cobalt and batteries. So all of those things are things we've looked at at the moment. Um, we don't actually have any investments there today outside of the the agriculture side of things. Uh, but it's definitely looking quite interesting. And it's, it's just important to remember that we, we weigh them up versus, say, the semiconductor opportunities in the same opportunity. So I'll give you a good example. So we all know electric cars are going to grow here um, aggressively from a very low point. Uh, so we'll go from 5% penetration to about 50% penetration. And out of that are going to be a range of winners, you know, starting at Tesla all the way down to the semiconductors that go into that, into the electrical the jacket that goes around the car, and then eventually all the way down to the commodities that go in, the battery producers and eventually down to the commodities. And what we do is we look at that whole supply chain and try and decide what are the best investment opportunities today. And I remember listening to you speak, Nick, uh, a few years ago, and you, you know, really articulate and clear for even an unemployed ex-footballer to understand, just the, the, the metrics around growth stocks, um, network effects, You've got a high-growing company. Uh, you don't have to sell it. You can really just hold it. If it's got a big addressable market, and you did that really well with some of the US tech stocks, a lot of these uh, stocks linked to climate change stocks are valued in that sort of growth basket and have been smacked around a bit with rising bond yields. How are you putting that into your valuation metrics? Does that concern you, or is the trend here just so big you're prepared to look through that because it's a long-term secular secular trend? Yeah, look, it's a great question. So, so, so as we discussed last time, you know, every time you're trying to invest in growth stocks, you're looking for an S-curve opportunity. You're looking for a structural trend. So, you know, you can invest in companies with headwinds and, and you'll make money, but it's hard. Why don't you just invest in companies with a tailwind? Um, the simple one we all know about is feature phones went to smartphones. It happened from about 2008 to 2018. Um, it turned Apple from a $50 billion company to a $3 trillion company. And it happens no matter what, just because we all basically decide a smartphone's great. Uh, the internet gets on your phone. Okay, so here we are at the start of the climate opportunity, $50 trillion that needs to be spent to decarbonise the planet. That's the number, roughly. Um, if we just looked at electric cars, you know, electric cars are just exactly the same as smartphones. We're not going to sell any more cars over the next 20 years, but we're going to sell a lot more electric cars. So it's a classic S-curve opportunity with a tailwind. 
coming back to the valuation issue, the big difference with the climate opportunity that we've seen from the tech opportunity is that the network effects won't really happen as much because it's a physical opportunity, right? You're actually, you know, you won't have this network effect where everything ends up on Google, so you all look at Google, so everyone looks at Google. You know, we can't all drive Teslas. Tesla's not going to be the only electric car manufacturer. There will be other ones. Um, so yes, there'll be network effects around those leaders, but there'll still be a winner. It, there won't be. A, it'll be a handful of winners, not just a winner takes most argument. That's difference number one. And difference number two is most of the ideas we look at are not expensive at all. In fact, in many cases, they trade at market multiples or below. And so the more we've looked at this opportunity, the more we find it is just boring companies uh, or, the, or boring companies that people think are boring that actually are winners here. So and some of those energy efficiency companies have fallen yeah. back bracket, wouldn't they? Were so they people not? who make insulation, for instance, people yeah. who, you know, there's only five companies in the world that can build a heat pump or a, an HVAC equipment for your building. Um, the battery manufacturers, there's only four companies, five companies in the world that can do that. Uh, semiconductor, boring semiconductors, power semis that go in to help a car go faster. So these are previously looked over industries that are now about to get really exciting. Even utilities, you know, utility, you have to electrify the entire grid and you have to electrify the entire economy. You're going to have to double the amount of power mm. you create in the world just to replace oil and coal, let alone the renewable power, which you're going to have to make 20 or 30 times bigger. So these are like quite boring companies that have now become quite exciting. And that's why we love it so much, because when going back to what I said at the start, you know, when we first invested in Apple, it only traded at 12 times earnings. You know, people couldn't see the opportunity and, and people can't see it here either. At a macro level, you sort of had the gold standard up until 71 and then you've had the petrodollar system. Do you think we're now at that, the start of a completely new system with the electrification of everything from money to cars that will have bigger changes than not just the climate but, but geopolitically as well? So geopolitically, yes. I mean, I think the simple way to think about this is, yes, you're going to have to spend a lot of money, okay? It's going to cost a lot and we're going to have to find a way to fund it all. The good news is it's not just governments that have to do it, it's, it's corporates and uh, individuals that do it themselves. So, they, so there's three ways you do it. You, you choose to be cleaner, which I'm sure happens in your house and happens in mine, especially if you've got children. The corporates are choosing to be cleaner. They're doing that all by themselves right now. So BHP sets a net zero target by 2050. Rio Tinto is under pressure to do it because the investors do it. And the last bit's just the governments. And all the governments have to do is create the framework for that to happen. Um, so geopolitically, does this change things? Look, I think all governments now realise that they need to be at the front of this, right, including our government, finally. Uh, but the governments that adopt it first, you know, will have the biggest winners. So the biggest wind turbine manufacturers in the world are listed in Denmark. You know, the largest electric car company in the world's come from California. This isn't a coincidence, right? This is because those were the states mm. that enabled it. So I think... Yes, it will make a big difference as to which countries adopt it first. And the last thing I'd just say is, you know, we now just think about how important semiconductors are in all of this and how unimportant oil is. Um, and I know the oil price is up and people like it, but, you know, we're now more worried geopolitically about Taiwan than we are about Saudi Arabia. Um, and, and I think that's a, that's, a, that's a telling change in the narrative around the world because Taiwan is where all our semiconductors are made. And so, James, I know... You and Nick have both spoken about the trillions of dollars that are going to need to be spent. Up until now, uh, I wouldn't say it's been convenient, but we've been in a disinflationary environment where, you know, if we get proper deflation with as much debt as we had, we, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a disaster. So it's been a nice environment to create projects that are going to create some inflation and prevent that deflationary bust from happening. We're sort of moving into a, a phase where inflation, you know, the 7.5% print in the States was, was enormous compared to what we've had for the last 40 years. Um, 
how does that sort of change the outlook or does it change the outlook at all from your perspective if, if it's no longer convenient to be spending these trillions of dollars as it was in a, a more disinflationary environment? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. I mean, if you just think about the clean energy side and the transition from sort of coal, gas, et cetera, to um, solar, wind, et cetera, obviously there are input costs there. Um, so, you know, building a wind turbine is not, not that easy and transporting a wind t- turbine is not that easy. Um, there's logistics issues in COVID, it's particularly pronounced. There's obviously raw materials issues with the price of steel, et cetera. But what we've generally found across these industries over time, be it solar or wind, um, or batteries will follow the same trend, but the, the cost curves have actually come down quite aggressively as technology's got better and scales got better. Um, and so generally what we've found is that the industries will catch up um, and will offset those price rises, um, whether it be the raw materials or, or labour or whatever it is. Um, and so that, that cost curve is now actually below, in a lot of cases, in a lot of jurisdictions, below coal, gas, etc. Um, and it will continue to keep falling as more scale goes in. The same thing will happen on the battery side as well. Obviously, Tesla being so important um, on the EV side, they've really um, blazed the trail there. And then other industries will, will come, if, come in off the back of that and benefit. So whether it be utility companies that are looking to store, um, use battery storage to store, store solar or wind when it's not sunny and it's not, not windy, um, they're going to uh, benefit from all that work that Tesla's done at the outset and, and, and other companies as well that are coming along as well. So generally what we find is those cost curves continue to bend over time. Um, and so I take your point, it, it will become harder in the, in the near term. Prices might go up a bit, um, but the companies are pretty good at you know, sort of pushing, pushing prices back down or the cost back down over time. And so we've all, like, I think everyone would want you know, clean water, clean air, but food they can afford to eat and lights when they... Lights on when they, they turn on. on the PowerPoint. And up until now, there hasn't looked like any of those things are going to be in conflict. But when you see, you know, oil moving towards 100 and, you know, it's possible it gets to 200, who knows, um, as supply has just been smashed while demand's still really strong. Can you see a world in the, in the, the next few years where the people pushing climate change policies are running up against people who just want to be able to afford to eat. Can you see that being a, an issue in the next three years? 100%. And so we were just talking about this before we came down here. But what people have to get their head around is it is an energy transition. It's a transition that's going to have lots of bumps on it, right? Mm. Um, you know, this isn't going to happen smoothly. And it is. And, and so if you're worried about commodity prices going up or prices going up, I'd, I'd say get used to it. Yeah. Because um, the, the idea is to kill supply before correct, demand. Because then it becomes less attractive and... The new, the new. No, well, no, but ultimately it kills demand. So, so well, if, in which case, demand for EVs goes up. Is what I'm saying. Correct, it kills yeah. all demand. So it, you, it, it kills supply first. It accelerates the transition. And so, so the transition. To give you an idea, I suppose if you take a really big step back and try to, the noise I'm, I'm, I'm guaranteeing is going to be there, and I'm saying get used to it. Mm. But if you take a really step, big step back, every time the commodity prices, say the oil price keeps going up, all that does is accelerates the transition. You know, it's actually in the interest of climate people for the for the oil price to go up because it makes you shift faster. Yeah, um, in, in a rich country, in a poor country, it leads to riots and uprisings. Correct. It's a bit different. <laughs> you know, like 100%. we'll be able to eat, no problem. 100%. And so what they do on the other side of that is you, you saw this at COP26, is you see these these countries saying, well, you need to incentivise us not to chop our forest down because mm. we're, we're a carbon sink. So you're paying Papua New Guinea money, you're paying Brazil money to, to, to pay their people money who are, quite frankly as you say, not wealthy, but, mm. you know, they live off chopping trees down to not chop trees down. Mm. Uh, this is not going to be a smooth transition. It's going to be really bumpy. And on top of that, don't forget, in the background, you're going to increasingly have these climate events 
because the planet is actually heating, mm. that are going to make it harder to grow crops, going to make it harder to, to extract oil and to, for harder to you know, transport wind turbines, etc. So, so this transition is not going to be smooth. It's going to be bumpy. But most people who look at it would say any bumps in the road just mean you should transition faster. And, and the opposite side is going to say we should stick to what we've got. Mm. Um, and that's going to play out over time. But I suspect as the planet starts to change, people and, and as corporates are forced to push down the other route, they'll just go faster. And, and finally, as James said, you know, ultimately you're trusting these companies and, and the capitalism involved to find the solutions and enable it and to lower the price. And that will happen eventually. Uh, but don't expect it to be a smooth ride. And, you know, this is part of the reason why we like agriculture and the fund, because agriculture's got a really important part to what role to play here. And James, talk me through the, the various carbon markets uh, around the world. Um, maybe explain to them for, for listeners that aren't familiar with them, um, because certainly the EU carbon price has just been yeah. on a uh, on a one-way tear the last since COVID, really. Mm, mm. Yeah. Actually, Nick has a lot of experience here because uh, he'll tell you over his career it's actually gone to zero twice. Um, so he's probably better placed because he's actually been there uh, for, for those investments uh, a bit before my time. But... Um, yeah, obviously the price of carbon is going up, um, so that is obviously an issue uh, in the in the short term for um, emitters. Uh, so the cost of them doing business is going up, and so it's something that they need to be cognizant of. And so again, back to your previous point, this is going to make them transition quicker. Um, and so if you think about an airline um, in Europe, price of carbon is going up. It's 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 probably going to continue to go up if they've got it right this time. And Nick can probably jump in here, but. Um, but they're going to basically invest in their fleets to basically um, bring down the, the, the footprints of their, their fleets. Um, they're going to invest in new Airbus planes, new Boeing planes, because they're 20% more efficient um, than their old fleets. So, um, again, it's going to continue to speed up. And that's one of Tesla's big revenue streams, isn't it, being on the other side of that transaction? Correct. They collect the cash. Yeah. And so, so put it a different way, right? So the carbon credit is there to, for an emitter to, 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 to emit. And every year they hand out less credits. And every year the price, in theory, goes up to incentivise you to switch. Um, that's the idea. If it works, the carbon price eventually goes to zero because no one's emitting anymore. Mm. So that's, that's risk number one. Risk number two is the problem is, is they have to decide how few to hand out every year. And, and, and if the economy goes into a recession then the emitters don't need as much credit. They gave it way too many at the start, Correct. didn't they? And, and all the, the polluters were lying about how much they were actually polluting and they got a heap more than they needed. And people and are sitting on them and storing them, et cetera, et cetera. So but has there been a shift in the last 18 in months Europe, in that market, in, in, in Europe, Europe in particular? They, they, they learned from the first two times. So the first two times it went to zero, right? Yeah. So both times they handed out too many credits and people were hanging on to them and the carbon price got to like 40 euros and then eventually went to zero. Yeah. Both times because there was a recession. Um, so, so they hadn't accounted for the slowdown in demand. This time they've been super tight with it and they're tightening it, they're adjusting it every year. And the EU's jumping in and buying them if they get too low. Or they Correct. Do, so Correct. does it feel like you've got an EU central bank put on the carbon price over there now, much a la what we've had in the stock market? Yes, but it, it's a bit like the oil price, right? So you know it might go up in the short term, but in the long run you know it should go down. Yeah, okay. Because all you're doing is accelerating the transition, so you're, you're accelerating demand destruction for credits. Um, and that's exactly the same trade for the oil price. So, so I get that people like oil and they think it's great, and I, I completely see the trade. Yeah. But not a single person listening to this podcast wants to, wants to own an oil stock 10 years from now. Yeah, um, particularly now that's taking Insta money. <laughs> <laughs> and so they want it. They're trying to 
do that trade. And, and carbon's a bit the same, if yeah. that makes sense. So you're, you're storing these things and you're grabbing them because you know everyone needs them. Yeah. But what we're saying is all this is doing is accelerating the transition. So why don't we just buy the companies that yeah. we're going to have to spend the money on to accelerate the transition? And that, quite simply, is to electrify. It's literally, you know, if you're BHP trying to get your carbon footprint to zero, you've got to change your heating, ventilation and cooling system. Yeah. You've got to move from gas-fired power to wind. You've got to, um, you've got to change the lighting in all your buildings. You've got to add insulation to your mine sites. You've got to look at hydrogen for the ships. That's what you've got to do to get to zero, not sit around and work out how many carbon credits can I buy yeah. to stave this off. One feels like more of a trade, one feels like more of an investment. It's a, it's a short-term solution, correct. And so what we're saying is, well, these are the companies that are positioning for the long run. Yeah. They're positioning for the transition. No one's even looking at them. They're in all these different countries around the world. In most cases, they trade at PEs of 15 and 16 times. And people are looking at next year's earnings, not looking at the next 10 years' earnings. And that's our classic growth investor trade, which we're, we're looking for. So any time I hear about yeah the numbers get thrown around in terms of what's going to get spent and the, the amount of EVs that are going to get built, and it just blows your mind for the, the commodities required and the excess capacity in those commodities, be it you know, copper or cobalt or tin or nickel, you could pick any of them, really, Link, you know, uh, uranium. Um, which of the commodities you see the most glaring deficit in if you, you look at the next five to ten years to get anywhere near the sort of numbers of, of EVs and, and clean baseload power that, that, that people are talking about? Yes, so I'll take this one. The, the big one, the, when we talk to Tesla and Tesla talks to us, they tell us it's nickel. It's yeah. nickel. It's the one that they worry about the most. Because it can't be manufactured out of their battery process. It, like, there's a bit of noise that cobalt can be... There's a bit of noise. cobalt content. They can definitely do that, but that's the one they worry about mainly because of the countries it's coming from okay. um, and, and the different places it comes from. And so, so that's the one they worry about the most. Uh, lithium, they've definitely moved to secure supply. There's definitely going to be a shortage on a three- to five-year view. And is that in the processing? Because there is a heap of lithium, isn't there? Yeah. Is it just the processing? No, it's just how long it takes to dig a hole and get it out of the ground. Yeah, okay. And and the processing, et cetera. So the people who get there, this is a classic, the people who get their first win. Yeah. And everyone else will get capital, and then the capital will turn up, and then at the end it'll be an oversupply. But that oversupply is is between five and ten years away. Yeah. Uh, It's a long way away. You're at that that key. I'll I'll just give you one stat. And look, my... Commodity friends are better at this than me. You started off as an oil and gas man, uh, didn't you? I did Royal Bank of Scotland, man. was it? Yeah, yeah, I did. No, yeah. no, Deutsche Bank. I was an Deutsche oil and gas man. Okay. Uh, but, but the stat that, that, that's going to blow everyone's mind is that, you know, last year, in December of 2021, we 10, 20% of all cars in the world sold were electric. A year ago, that was 10%. Uh, Europe's over 20%. China's over 20%. There's whole countries that are over 30%. And the big ones that haven't moved are the US and obviously Australia, which is not a big one, but we're sub 5%. So this inflection is happening, mm. and these models are becoming available. Um, and so what will happen is it will inflect much, much faster than the supply can come and create, again, another great opportunity, another great trading opportunity, uh, but again, a good opportunity. And, and so, yeah, we'd point to nickel and lithium as the two that we'd like the most. And James, can this transition happen, do you think, without nuclear, uh, nuclear base load power? Yeah, good good question. Obviously, what we're seeing at the moment, Germany's turning off their nuclear and it's possibly coming back to bite them here with obviously what's going on with gas and, and, and Russia and so forth. Um, so, yeah, we would be of, of the view that basically we need anything to get that emissions curve down. So Including gas? 
Yes, yes, as well. Yes, as a as so a, get rid of thermal coal, but embrace gas. Yeah, and embrace yeah. In, nuclear. The, in, in the in the short to medium term, anyway, we have the view that basically the carbon price, uh, the amount of carbon being emitted is still uh, going up uh, because the world is growing, emerging markets are growing. Uh, we actually burnt a lot of coal in twenty twenty one. And China burning um, a lot more coal all of a sudden, aren't they? Correct. Yeah. And so what what sort of this the uh, consultants and so forth are saying is that actually. Um, we know we're near getting back to that one, one and a half degree trajectory. We're, we're firmly on the three uh, degrees, and and um, so we're basically the view that we need we need all technologies to get to that to that, that one and a half um, because it's just not going to not going to happen quickly enough with the way that the world is still positioned, um, and all of our efforts at home and and so forth. It's all great, but um, but it's not going to be enough to get there. We need we need this um, spending to happen now, and it needs to inflect now. Nick talked about EV cars. Um, if you sort of zoom in on the S-curve, if you can imagine the S-curve in your mind, we're at that inflection point in EVs right now, but we need other technologies to come and do the same thing uh, quickly. So solar's already sort of on the S-curve. Uh, wind, onshore wind is on the S-curve. Um, offshore wind is at the very start of the S-curve, and that needs to pick up and pick up quickly. Um, but there's, yeah, there's many things that are just literally getting started now or not even off the ground. Like So green hydrogen's probably... You know, it's probably five years away, and that needs to come forward, and that needs to get built. So, does that make um, economic sense without nuclear yes. hydrogen? Like, cause you use a lot of energy to get it out. Uh, you know, I yeah. mean, it looks great when it's just burning water at the back of the bus, but I find that yeah. a hard one to get my head around the amount of energy required to produce the hydrogen in the first place. Yeah. So, in in theory, I mean, places like Australia, Saudi Arabia, etc., should have access to cheap renewables, i.e., sun, wind, big coastline, etc., should be able to produce green hydrogen. Um, but the problem is that all of these projects are back part of the decade if they're on time mm. and probably more into 2030. Um, so, yeah, our view is until you sort of get to scale there, because you're, you're not even on the S-curve really, mm. um, you, you're going to need sort of gas and, and, and nuclear and so forth to sort of bridge that gap. Then hopefully by the time we get sort of a decade or so down the road, hopefully there's other things that are um, you know going to help with storage. So hydrogen also helps with storage alongside batteries and so forth. Um, and the hard to decarbonise industries as well. Um, hopefully that will start to pick up and, and we can lower emissions that way. But, um, but yeah, for the moment, it's quite concerning in terms of where we are in terms of just um, the level of emissions still going out today. Um, and I know you guys are focused on global opportunities, but do you think Australia will ever embrace nuclear energy at home? Oh, good question. Do you have a yeah, I can answer that. The, the big problem with nuclear is, is it just takes a really long time to build a new one, right? So you've got to find somewhere to put it have the most almighty fight with the people next door mm. to it um, and then you've got to build it and it takes about 15 years to build it and then you've got to plan. So you're looking at 20, 25 years minimum. I mean, that's how long it's going to make us going to take us to build a nuclear submarine. So it's just not going to come quickly enough, mm. quite frankly. Um, and so from that point of view, while obviously we agree that other countries are making a mistake turning their nuclear off, they shouldn't. If they have an existing nuclear power plant, they should keep it running. Mm. They should even try and expand it if they can with permitting. But building a new one's really, unless you're in China or India, is really, really it's hard. It's hard doing it in democracy too because you've got to see it through for different governments over a, an extended period and a, a policy that may not be overly popular. It's very, very hard. And look, Australia, to the, you know, we do have the ability, you know, the stuff that they're talking about doing up in Northern Territory um, with solar farms, um, the offshore wind. The potential's there, but the biggest potential, to be honest, is just to consume less. It's on the efficiency side. It's the one that no one ever actually looks at that mm. closely, is, is how efficient, how much can you recycle, how, how much can you save just through better use of products, better technology, et cetera. And so that's the, that's the one that I know these problems are hard to solve, but we can actually just, just use a bit less as well. It also helps. 
that's at 25% of the pie that we talked about at the start of the yeah. 50 trillion. So it's actually the biggest piece. So all the other stuff like the clean transport and so forth gets a lot of press, but it's actually less than 20%. We do think that, that sort of 25% of the of pie is probably overlooked. Yeah. And there's just some very basic companies that um, we've been following for a long period of time that, that help with that. Um, so Nick mentioned half a dozen HVAC companies, insulation companies, um, and so forth. Double so, glazing. Yeah. Yeah. All the simple stuff. Yeah, and yeah. Europe's obviously trying to um, incentivise this by speeding up the um, average time of renovations. So I think it's on average 2% of um, buildings are sort of renovated per annum. They're trying to speed that up um, to get more renovations happening. Good for the economy, but also improves the carbon footprints of buildings, you know, office buildings and the like. So, um, and a yeah, good opportunity for these sort of industrial type of companies. And you, you mentioned at the start, countries which act first get rewarded handsomely by you know, having companies that, that become dominant in these chosen fields, which countries do you see providing the most opportunities or, or acting the fastest in, in the, the climate change, clean energy, energy space? Yeah, so clearly the Europeans are at the front of the curve here. They're, um, in terms of adopting net zero targets, um, they're, they're paying for it at the moment, um, but, but that's what they're adopting. Um, and so as they adopt them quickly, they, they promote national champions and those national champions are the companies we invest in. And so simple way to think about this is, you know, you, you mentioned when I was an oil and gas analyst, you know, every oil and gas company was effectively once a national champion. Mm. It got really simple. You discovered oil in Britain, you create BP, and then BP takes their expertise around the world and finds oil in all these other places. That's a national champion. You know, the French had one in total, uh, the Norwegians, etc. So now that you are going through the energy transition, if you provide the right policies at home to build expertise and to create a national champion, then that national champion can then go on to dominate the world. And we're seeing that already. Um, you know, so most of the first Teslas were sold in California and now they're being sold all over the world. And, you know, Denmark went 100% renewable a decade ago and now that technology is being used to help everyone else to go there. So, so when we think about it from a country point of view, we're just looking for the countries that can foster these great national champions because they're the ones we want to invest in. And James, what's happening, you know, in terms of Australia, we, we produce a buckload of commodities are going to be used in the, the EV and clean energy space, but traditionally haven't done a lot of the processing on shore. We, we've palmed that off and it's a big part of the value chain. Again, it's not necessarily in the funds wheelhouse, but from an Australian perspective, can you see a world where we start to 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 benefit from that value-add part of the, of the chain more at home by doing the processing in Australia, or do you think we'll continue to outsource that to other countries? The biggest piece for Australia, look, I'm not sure whether that would ever happen given the labour price here but um, I think the biggest opportunity here is the natural resources that we have in terms of like the wind and, and sun and so forth and, and I do think that like we do have established sort of links to Asia as well and you know we do think hydrogen's a little bit further away um, but we do think there's probably an opportunity there to export to to Japan for example and they're obviously Toyota for example is is going down that path um, so that, that's an opportunity for Australia in terms of just using that sort of existing uh, natural resource uh, and then obviously the, the shipping and logistics links as well so that's that's probably an opportunity and then obviously uh, the other thing is just um, obviously what Mike Cannon Brooks is doing as well um, and just basically exporting power into Asia as well so um, yeah we have a lot of opportunities here as you mentioned on the natural resources side um, in terms of the commodities themselves I mean that's obviously huge as well and we talked about gas as a bridging fuel so um, yeah still plenty of opportunities here and probably also the educational side and so forth and just the expertise of, 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 of what we do here and hopefully the government can um, sort of as Nick said sort of provide some um, frameworks for you know 
adopting these new technologies. We probably missed out on the tech situation with Silicon mm. Valley and hopefully we don't sort of make the same mistake again because we, we do sort of see this as a 30-year opportunity. And so hopefully, you know, we can grasp it in some ways and some sort of champions will come out of here or some sort of IP will come out of here. Um, it'll be an opportunity lost if we don't sort of grasp it, I think. And Nick, what about some of the battery tech opportunities? What are you seeing in that space that's developing? I mean, I'm sure there's heaps. No, but no, maybe, maybe I'd be really interested in baseload power. I know we speak a lot about yep. EV batteries. What are you seeing in baseload power batteries? Is it vanadium redox flow batteries that are interesting? Or, or what's... What are you seeing that's prickling your interest there? So, so it's complicated, um, but but to simplify it, we can. The car companies have all made their bets already, so the car yeah. companies are all lithium ion. Um, and and you don't think the chemistries will change much now because they've spent the capex on factories and it's sort of pretty set. much yeah they've made their bets and they won't really change it yeah um, for, for twenty the, years or so at least yeah I mean yeah the actual the technology within the battery will change but, yeah. but that's you know slightly you know a little bit less coal but a little bit more nickel you know try and get more range etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh, they'll do stuff with the semis as well to try and get the car to go faster uh, but they've made their bets at base load level and maybe James can jump in here but really you know the reality is the base load sits beside a renewable to keep a renewable to turn a renewable into base load so and lithium ion batteries aren't really functional for that are they because you can't recycle it they can't. They are. They are long. doing it, and you can recycle them. But um, from you know the companies we've spoken to, there's a mixture of technologies here. But most of them are still doing lithium ion. They just put. Are it, they? they? just put it in a big. They put it in a big shipping container, and the shipping container sits beside a solar plant, and on it goes and off it goes. And I'm how sh- long do they reckon? Because I mean, your car yeah. lasts what eight to ten years. Mm-hmm. Are they forecasting that that's, that's they're going to get longer that's a good out of question. that? Do you know the answer to that one? I don't. I mean. You have to assume that things improve over time. That's generally the way things work. All right, all right Christian Invest to be renowned as backing vanadium redox flow batteries for the yeah, base load okay. power. A 30-year battery, can recycle it. I Very see. heavy, not functional for transport. Yeah, so that could so, – so what you want to do, if that's what you believe, then so the big guys that we speak to, the biggest and the best in the world is Nextera Energy in the US. Yeah. By far the largest investor in renewables globally um, and investing heavily in batteries to go alongside their renewables. And at the moment, they're buying most of them, or they were buying most of them from Samsung, SDI, and LG up in Korea and Taiwan, and, and essentially going with a big, effectively a scaled up, not dissimilar to what they have in Adelaide at the moment, yeah. which is the one that Tesla built, which is essentially just a big crate with a whole bunch of batteries in it. And what that does is allows the thing to run 24-7. Now, if you could find a better technology to go in the crate, Trust me, they'll be all over it. So if you drill around their website, they're the biggest <laughs> buyer of these things. If they're going to buy them, then it's going to work. Just for the listeners, probably back the big guys and not Chris Judd and Best if you're looking at, <laughs> at battery opportunities. But uh, <laughs> mate, I reckon that's, uh, that's a good way to finish up. That's been a great insight. I uh, look forward to following the fund and, uh, and hope it goes really well. But thanks to both of you for, for coming on and, and having a chat. Really appreciate it. No, thanks Probably's. very much for having us. Chris, it's been good to catch up. Thanks, thanks guys. This episode of Talk Your Book was proudly brought to you by Honan, who go beyond a transactional insurance broker to deliver better outcomes for their clients. If you're enjoying Talk Your Book, make sure you subscribe to Chris Judd Invest. Nothing you hear today should be considered investment advice. Please do your own research and seek out your own financial advisor before committing any capital to these markets.